and welcome to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. I'm Peter Beinart, a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today, I'm joined by Zaha Hassan and Daniel Levy, co-authors of a new report for the Carnegie Endowment and the U.S. Uh, Middle East Project uh, called Breaking the Israel-Palestine Status Quo. Zaha Hassan is a human rights lawyer and a visiting fellow at Carnegie. Daniel is the president of the U.S. Middle East Project. I'm excited to talk about the ideas in this report, how Daniel and Azaha see a way out of a failed, out of failed peace initiatives and what US policy under the Biden administration should be, and especially the focus on a rights-based approach. Zaha and Daniel, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Zaha, I wanted to start with you. Um, there's a paragraph near the beginning of this report, uh, and it reads, um, the approach as broadly defined here would prioritize protecting the rights and human security of Palestinians and Israelis over maintaining a peace process and attempting short-term fixes. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, I mean, for the last three decades of peace processing, there has been a concerted effort to deprioritize rights and international law. The United States, um, you know, in order to entice Israel to the negotiating table, sort of played down rights, um, thinking that you know that would discourage Israel from wanting to negotiate if international law was brought into the game. So you know um, that the message to Israel was that you know we could continue to build as long as we continued with the peace process. We could continue to build settlements, and all the time knowing that the U.S. would be guaranteeing to shield it from, from accountability and at the UN and, and in other fora. And on the Palestinian side, the, you know, the US is the only game in town. So the US setting the rules and, and the rules being that there would be no normative, normative framework um, was part of the package for them to participate in the, in the negotiations. So what, we've, what we're saying in the paper is that you know, that has created a very warped incentive structure because it, while the US might, might have been supportive of a two-state solution, it was actually undermining the possibilities of a two-state solution because it was encouraging Israel to continue with its settlement uh, project um, and, and letting it drag out negotiations for, to, for such a long time that a two-state solution was becoming impossible. And in the meantime, Palestinian rights um, and, and their daily life were being abridged. So, you know, you're we were seeing home evictions and, and dispossession and, um, you know, all of the attendant consequences of that settlement project on Palestinian lives. And that wasn't being addressed because there was a concerted effort to prevent Palestinians from being able to access, you know, legal mes uh, mechanisms or even diplomatic initiatives in order to get the international community to help, um, you know, uh, you know, curb Israel's um, ambitions in the, in the occupied territories. So what we're saying now is, okay, we've tried this for 30 years. We've tried this idea of we need to just deprioritize law and rights. And, and we think it's time now to put that back on the table, particularly given that there is no one state solution, there is no two state solution that is um, consistent with international legitimacy. So what needs to be the focus now is making sure that there is security for both Israelis and Palestinians, human security, and that there are rights for both people. And that should be the guiding principle of US policy moving forward, regardless 
of you know what political outcome there might be for the parties in the future. Right. So Daniel, can can I could we drill down on this a little bit? So so let's say the Biden administration says, all right. You've convinced us. We're not going to focus on this peace process anymore. We're going to focus on human security, uh, international law. What should they do differently? Uh, I think you're muted. Sorry. Um, look, first of all, that, that, that would be a nice question to be asked. Um, <laughs> I'm sure any moment now, any moment now. I'll, I'll, I'll leave my phone uh, <laughs> Take it off silence. Um, <clears throat> so I think the, the, the phrase Zaha used is, is the key phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, this idea of a skewed, distorted, upside down incentive structure. Uh, and that speaks to the, the way I would go about answering your question, Peter, which is the absence of any cost or consequences, any accountability for those policies on the Israeli side, which have entrenched the settlements, which Zaha spoke about, as part of a broader matrix of control. I mean, in Gaza, there are not settlements today, but there is that matrix of control. That has been allowed to just flow on because of this impunity. So I think the, the answer to that question would center around the removal of the impunity. And, you know, some people may say, yeah, that's a huge stretch for American policy. I'm sure it is in many ways, but let's not ignore, I'll put aside the domestic political side of things just for a moment. But let's not ignore the cost that America currently takes on itself. Direct cost assistance, but I'm not even primarily talking about that. The diplomatic heavy lift that goes into guaranteeing this impunity. And it's often in order to guarantee no consequences for policies that America itself says it opposes says undermines American policy. So I think that the first port of call would be, um, how do you almost normalize how you relate to Israeli international law violations, human rights violations, things that directly contravene um, American policy. And, and it's important to say that, that we're coming at this Yes, because it's the right thing for America to do, but also because this, this it, again, it's this phrase, the distorted incentive structure. America has almost placed a suffocating blanket over the domestic political debate inside Israel. I'll start with that one. Inside Israel, by doing this thing, which means none of this carries a, a cost or consequence. So. You, you have right now uh, an Israeli um, coalition negotiation. You're going to potentially have a, a kind of hydra-headed monster of leaders from the far right, 
and what remains of the of the Zionist left and the center who could form a coalition, they're able to do so because they can park this issue. And they're able to park this issue because it doesn't carry a cost of consequence. We, by the way, make the argument that it has a similar, albeit it plays out in different ways, uh, impact on Palestinian politics. So I think that that's where I would um, begin. Um, before I go back to Zaha, I want to, Daniel, I just, because it's so, it's so often expressed in kind of Washington political discourse, I want to ask you to respond to the, the very conventional argument that we often hear. Sometimes on this podcast, I like to take on the persona of someone I call Ira, um, who's someone, uh, I, the kind of person I might see at a, at a kiddish on Shabbat. And Ira might say, um, actually, what we know from history is that Israel only takes risks for peace when it is reassured by the United States and threatening Israel, therefore, will simply make it, uh, push it further to the right and make it more intransigent. How would you respond to Ira? First of all, I, I, you know, welcome the fact that we're back having a kiddish after so long. <laughs> <laughs> and you may be running short on your kind of Ira anecdotes over the last year, Peter. Um, it's right. It's it's true. Not as much herring. Yeah. It's a, so. Um, yes, uh, between mouthfuls of herring, my response to Ira would be that that history doesn't back that up. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, I think I might have to quote you it yourself. Uh, in, in a piece that you wrote that I believe challenged that thesis. Um, when is it that that has happened mm. as a result of, of, of the, uh, the warm embrace? What, it, what that has tended to do is meant that at best, the Israeli side thought it could kick this can down the road. At worst, it's fueled the steady trajectory towards greater extremism and the reverse has been the case. So, you know, it's going back some, some time in history now, but if you look back at that um, Bush loan guarantee, uh, 91 bumps up against an Israeli election in which Rubin actually, you know, he wins the election, but he runs on, why are you undermining our relationship with the US for the settlements? Money to poor neighborhoods, not to settlements. Go back even further in history. Camp David, Egypt, that comes off the back of the 73 war. That comes off the back of the Kissinger Ford ultimatum. But, well, the, the, we're reviewing, we're reconsidering um, the relationship. We've simply abandoned um, thinking in those terms. Now, you know, also the peace process begins, Oslo begins. You know, where, you know, we, uh, the paper now kind of depicts Oslo as the peace process, as the refuge of scoundrels who want to maintain the status quo. That's where you go. And that, I think, is the main piece of framing to push back against that. But it begins against the backdrop of the Intifada. Sharon withdraws from Gaza against the backdrop of the Second Intifada. Now, I would rather not see a Yom Kippur war, an intifada, the death and, 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 and destruction on all sides that that brings in order to make progress. But you know, don't set up this binary where the only thing left is violence. Right. Zaha, I wanted to, wanted to 
we go back to you. Um, uh, Daniel was mentioning that that the the impunity that Israel can operate under creates distorted incentive structures for both the Israeli government and also the Palestinian leadership. Um, and I wonder if you can talk about the Palestinian side and how you think, um, uh, why you think it would be valuable for Palestinian politics for the US to adopt this different approach. Yeah, I mean, definitely it's impacted Palestinian democracy and it's, and it's impacted the way that the Palestinian leadership um, relates to its citizens and that the types of the type of political space that we find now in Palestine, which is closing and closing every day. Um, you know, this embedded in U.S. law is this idea that, you know, we will only have a relationship with Palestinians um, to the extent they're engaged in the Middle East peace process. In U.S. law, Palestinians are still treated or the Palestinian leadership is still treated as a terrorist organization. So they, they get these waivers to be able to operate in the US and to be in the US only if they maintain the relationship. And that's why we saw, you know, Trump um, basically evicting the, the PLO um, representative in the US um, when he wouldn't engage on the Middle East peace plan. That's always been the condition for a US uh, bilateral relationship with Palestinians. And so Palestinians know that. And so they, and they recognize there, they, there can be no negotiations and, and Israel will not come to the table unless the US is that mediator, is that facilitator. Um, and so it, it, what happens is the Palestinians end up playing to the US. So, you know, the US says, we don't want you to have a government that includes Hamas or people that that uh, are against the Oslo Accords or against um, or won't recognize Israel first um, as a condition of them being a member of, of, a, of a government um, or sitting in, in a Palestinian parliament. I mean that so Palestinians adopt that as their, you know, as their position too. that, you know, it, Hamas can't be in a government. Hamas can't can't um, be allowed to. Uh, accommodate itself to the Palestinian political fabric because it's because that's a condition that the U.S. has imposed and and keeps in place and you know financial assistance economic assistance is also tied to this Palestinian compliance and so what ends up happening over time is you start to see um, you know uh, the Palestinian leadership becoming more and more closed not liking the idea of elections because you don't know what elections can bring and, and not being responsive to Palestinian, their Palestinian constituents who you know, aren't happy with the fact that the nascent Palestinian democracy has been stifled. And so you start to see more of a securitized relationship between the Palestinian authority and its people. And the only reason for the PA being any longer is, is to relate to Israel, to provide for its security needs, to maintain a peace process that's not going anywhere. So how, so over time that also means that Palestinians no longer see their leadership as legitimate. It means they no longer believe in a peace process because they don't see anything but more checkpoints and um, more settlements all around them. And so it, it completely, um, diminishes the credibility of a US sponsored peace negotiations with Israel and and then you see exactly the opposite outcome that the that the US wants 
which they continue to say their preferred outcome is a two-state solution, but are doing nothing to, um, to curb Israel and its um, desire to you know, expand into uh, deep inside of the West Bank. So the message is that, yes, we talk the language of two states, but we don't have any intention of, of actually putting any pressure on Israel towards that end. And on top of it, we're going to prevent you, Palestinians, from accessing any kind of um, legal mechanisms or diplomatic um, initiatives to be able to pursue that outcome on your own. So so that's that's the kind of warped, <laughs> um, warped situation that's been ongoing for the last some decades um, under U.S. policy, and that's why we think now is a time to to move towards uh, rights respecting uh, policy and and a policy that centers law. Can I add one thing? Yeah, please. I mean, look, for the first time in fifteen years, there's been an announcement that elections will be held uh, at least in the occupied Palestinian territories. Actually, there's an announcement that there will be elections for the overall PLO national bodies, which encompasses uh, Palestinian communities in refugee camps and in diaspora. I, I, you know, it's really hard for me to witness that the Palestinians announce elections and the US administration, this administration, doesn't come forward and say, elections, yay, let's make these happen. This is great, elections. And they maintain the quartet conditions on Hamas at the very same time as they're doing what they're doing in Afghanistan. Now, I want to see that forever war ended. I wanna see those troops. That's the right thing. Time will tell whether the deal with the Taliban is the right thing, but if that's part of the way out, maybe. But can you really take the position you're taking on the Taliban and maintain the quartet conditions against uh, any involvement of Hamas? conditions that are normally the outcome of a process, say to the Palestinian factions, we expect one thing of you, you respect international law, and that means not targeting innocent civilians amongst other things. This, and, you know, where's the, you know, where's, where's the outcry about this as well? Right, right. No, and I think to make it worse, I think the Biden administration has signaled from what I've seen that they wouldn't particularly mind if, if, if Abbas cancels the elections altogether. Um, um, so but also, I mean, just to add to Daniel, I mean, where is the conditions on, on you know, various right. Israeli parties right. <laughs> to yes. not become part of an Israeli government if they don't support, you know, the Oslo process or a two-state solution? I mean, it's just a, a double standard that, that everyone notes in the Middle East and maybe yeah. not, maybe not in D.C., but everyone notes it in the Middle East. Right. No, I fear in D.C. it's, it's so, so taken for granted that it's almost like, you know, the air you don't even notice is there. Um, so I wanted to give you the last word. So the, the, the report seems to, to not repudiate the idea of two states, but essentially to say that that should no longer be the paradigm. And I, I just wanted to, to you to talk a little bit about the right way that you think this to, to, to relate to the whole debate about two states, one state, confederation, whatever, um, and how you thought about that as you as you authored this report. Well, I mean, first of all, neither solution is on the table, right? It's both mm -hmm. of them are as as likely as the other, um, or unlikely as the other. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the, the, in in any case, it really isn't the place for the US to tell Israelis and Palestinians hmm. what their relationship to each other should be. 
You know, what we, what our role is given our investment in the region, given the amount of, you know, security assistance we provide Israel, given um, our investment, even in Palestinian, I mean, we've, we've provided a lot of economic assistance to Palestinians and um, development assistance. And we are going to be continuing with that under uh, President Biden. But, um, you know, we, you know, that's our, our place is not to, to, to tell them what the outcome is when we know that there isn't a political horizon right now. The focus should be on how, how, do, how are we using our aid and our other levers of power as the United States in the region and whether or not we are, um, you know, operating there in a way that's consistent with our values, something that's incredibly important to this administration. I mean, you can see it, the word values 23 times in their, you know, 25 page document, I think, uh, on their national security uh, strategy. So are we, are we con operating there consistent with our values as are our, you know, um, security assistance, our economic assistance, is that facilitating, um, you know, rights and respect for international law, or is that actually undermining international law? Is that actually facilitating Israeli, um, you know, colonization of the West Bank? So these are just some of the questions that we hope U.S. policymakers will ask when they're considering, you know, what their priorities should be. But right now, prioritizing negotiations or just maintaining a peace process, that actually has proven to be the wrong strategy because of the incentive structures that Daniel talked about and that I talked about with respect to the, the way in which it's allowing Israel under cover of negotiations to continue to expand. Right. Yeah. Imagine if we had a national security strategy that instead of mentioning values 22 times, mentioned international <laughs> law even once. Um, uh, um, thank you so much, Daniel and Zaha, for our conversation today. Uh, and thank you today for our listeners for tuning into this episode of the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a project of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. You can visit our website at fmep.org to subscribe to our many resources and find today's podcast episode posted, along with links to additional resources about this topic. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. I'm Peter Beinart. I look forward to our next episode. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.